the media landscape in America is busted. Americans are on to the omissions, the half-truths, and the outright lies being propagated against we, the people. Your host, Tom Harris, will bring you the other side of the story. Can batteries effectively store power from renewable energy sources like wind and solar? It might seem like the ideal option as wind and solar are intermittent and so require power to be stored for future use when the wind isn't blowing or the sun isn't shining. But it turns out that batteries are nowhere near sufficient to supply our energy needs. In fact, we may have to rely on natural gas and other conventional energy sources to provide power after the batteries are quickly discharged. And the batteries used are a far cry from the environmentally friendly image that is presented by government and mainstream media. So we need to properly understand what battery storage really entails before embarking on a fundamentally flawed plan that will drastically impact our lives and livelihood. Our guest today is Parker Gallant, who will give us an insight into the detrimental battery storage plans being enacted across Canada. Mr. Parker Gallant is a retired international banker who now researches the energy sector. Parker applies his 33 years of banking experience with TD Bank to take a common sense approach to analyzing the production, transmission, and distribution of electricity to Ontario's consumers. And he also delves into those issues related to the energy sector in other parts of Canada and elsewhere as well. Parker has been a regular contributor to the Financial Post, that's a part of the National Post, a very important newspaper across Canada, and other periodicals on matters related to the energy sector. He also runs the important Parker Gallant Energy Perspectives blog. So welcome to the show, Parker. Glad to be here, Tom. All of this chatter about uh, battery storage takes me back to about 40 years ago, um, me and, and a, a bunch of my friends used to, every fall, go off to uh, fish. And we used to go up to uh, Lake Tamagami and Lake Obabika and stay at lodges there. And uh, the lodges, most of them were quite often on, on uh, Lake Tamagami, at least, on islands. And when you get to an island uh, in, in sort of the northwestern part of of Ontario, there's no access to electricity. So a lot of the uh, places that we stayed at, those lodges would have battery banks, believe it or not. Oh. And those battery banks would be charged up by a generator, uh, you know, like a diesel generator that they would have on site uh, so that we would be comfortable. They would have uh, heat and lights and whatever else we needed. Mm-hmm. To, uh, you know, while away the hours when we weren't in the in the boat fishing. So, you know, as I said, uh, back then, 40 years ago, that was uh, what was going on. And I always remember when we went to Lake uh, Obabika one time, uh, we went to this lodge, a new lodge that had been uh, on television and one of those fishing shows. And when we got to the lodge itself, uh, well, before we got to the lodge, we had to drive sort of 40 kilometers of really nasty road to get to the lodge itself, which was on the south end of the lake. And when we got there, we looked up, and, and there on a little hill was a small wind turbine. Oh! That that wind turbine was helping to charge uh, a, a bunch of batteries that were stored in a, in a shed. And uh, on top of that, 
he had uh, a, a diesel generator too to fire up things. Yeah. So as I said, you know, the whole issue of battery storage goes back some time. Um, and, and that's, I just, I just wanted to read that story to you. Yeah. How long would the batteries last once they were charged? They would last quite a while because uh, I'm trying to think one of the lodges we went into uh, that we stayed at, there was a, uh, it must have been a 40 by 20 foot shed and it had uh, batteries lined up and they were all automobile batteries, but they were all lined up and connected to each other. And those were the ones that were being charged. So it would last quite a while. Uh, mm -hmm. Certainly, we never had the lights go out or anything else when we were. Okay. Well, that's, ones. yeah, that's interesting because you're not fundamentally anti-battery, but you understand that if you try to power the province on batteries, it's, it's a different issue. Very definitely. Yes. You were, you were asking about the, how gas is used, and, and uh, that brings up an interesting topic that I just learned about. Um, Enbridge delivers gas through their pipeline that comes uh, from uh, west and goes through Michigan and crosses uh, crosses into Windsor area. Mm -hmm. And Windsor has got uh, two or three gas generating plants already operating there. And uh, as a result, uh, those generating plants will presumably uh, continue to provide power, particularly now that Stellanus has got, what, 13, over $13 billion in government money to build a battery factory. And that battery factory will need dependent, if you will, very dependent uh, electricity to keep things functioning and probably will also need natural gas and some of its manufacturing processes. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. uh, Enbridge, uh, basically through their, uh, it's called Panhandle Regional Pipeline, uh, uh, wants to expand it. They want to make it a 36-inch pipeline instead of a 22-inch pipeline, which will allow them to provide a lot more gas, natural gas, to both uh, those uh, uh, natural gas plants as well as to Stellanus. Mm -hmm. So that, yeah, so if I understand rightly, the conventional power is needed for when the batteries are depleted. Is that why we need conventional power even with batteries? Oh, yeah, but in this case, uh, the the power is going to supply uh, the company that's going to manufacture batteries for our, for our EVs. <laughs> oh wow, yeah, yeah. That's why I see it. I say it's uh, ironic, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So they're not using batteries to power the battery power, the battery making plants. <laughs> yeah. yeah, 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 and 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 also, um, what don't they need power to keep the batteries a certain temperature? Oh yes, they. Um, you know, uh, the battery packs themselves obviously have to be uh, insulated and protected against both cold weather and warm weather, so that they don't you know, collapse completely or fire up, if it will. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. That entails quite a bit of an expense when you're building a battery, you know, a storage plant. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, adds a lot of cost to to what they can finally deliver. So when people say, oh, we're going to have wind power with battery backup, that's not enough, isn't it? I mean, when the battery's dead and there's no wind, you need conventional power to keep the battery warm or not too hot. 
so that you can recharge it when there is wind later. So you need it also to maintain the battery when it's discharged and to charge the battery, of course, if there's no wind. Yes, uh, and that's frequently happening in Ontario. I mean, I've written several articles about, uh, you know, how we wind is absent. It just doesn't produce for hours on end, and sometimes it's days on end. Mm. It was a, an occurrence in the early part of September uh, when I looked at um, the IESO, the Independent Electricity System Operator that manages the grid here in Ontario. Um, when I looked at, at their statistics over the three days, uh, it happened to be three days, uh, that the wind was just not there. Uh, basically, our natural gas plants that we have here wound up producing almost 250,000 megawatts of power over those three days. Right. And uh, you would need a lot of batteries to supply that uh, mm-hmm. you know, amount of power over those three days. Yeah. Now, it's interesting. I attended a battery energy storage system. Those are the best, B-E-S-S, that people call them. I attended a presentation from a company that wanted to put them up in the Ottawa area. And they told me when I asked about, oh, you know, you're using this to store excess energy from the wind at night. They said, no, no, no. Uh, We're using it to store excess energy from nuclear at night because otherwise we have to just bleed off the energy and they just lose it. But is that really true? I mean, are they going to be using batteries to back up excess power from nuclear stations at night? No. I mean, uh, we have about, uh, presently, about 9,000 megawatts of nuclear operating, and they operate 100% of the time, right? We don't shut those down, and they don't fluctuate in terms of what they're producing. Uh And, uh, or if they do fluctuate, it's just a, a couple of megawatts. So, but um, to to look at our minimum, uh, if you will, consumption, pretty well any day of the year, we never ever get below twelve thousand megawatts. Uh, so that's the low point during any of our days over three hundred and sixty five days of the year that we would, uh, you know, be be using all of that power, and and mm-hmm. we can't do without that. It's base load power, so. Uh, whatever the batteries are going to be charged with certainly is not nuclear. Yeah. So if I understand rightly, then the the purpose of the batteries in this case is to take whatever excess power is being generated at night, which you're saying would not be nuclear, it would be wind. So really it's the excess wind power that's not needed at night that they need the batteries for. Yeah, it would be, uh, you know, uh, wind for sure. And in during the day, if we don't need the solar, and solar is producing, and sometimes, you know, like Ontario was unique, uh, not unique, but it, it's got uh, two seasons where demand is high. And of course, summer is when it's the highest, and, and our demand levels can often exceed 22,000 megawatts. So that's a lot. And uh, during the, the spring and fall seasons, however, which unfortunately is when the wind is blowing much stronger, um, and um, it, it it will only reach on occasions seventeen thousand megawatts at the maximum. So uh, the demand during the spring and fall are much lower, and we mm-hmm. don't need additional power. But unfortunately, that is when the wind has the habit of blowing the most. Is when when we don't need it in the spring yeah. and fall. 
how long would that backup last, do you think? Well, you know, uh, as an example, the there's one project that I, I did some research on, which is the Alita Energy Storage, um, uh, Battery Energy Storage Project, and it's 250 megawatts. Mm-hmm. And basically, so it can disperse, you know, it should logically disperse 250 megawatts. But uh, what happens, of course, when, when the battery stores that excess, um, so it, it stores 250 megawatts, but then when it disperses it, it disperses it over four hours. Mm, so you okay. get 250 megawatts for four hours in a row, but it, it's not 250 megawatts. It's usually 10 to 15% less. But after the four hours, it has to be recharged. There's just no, nothing left of it in those batteries. Mm. Yeah. Now, I was given a statistic, and maybe you can tell me if this is even relevant to Ontario. I was told that if California, which has this this engineer was saying the biggest battery pack in the world, were to rely purely on battery power to run the state, it would give enough power for 103 seconds. So, I mean, is that revealing or is that a useless statistic? No, it's probably a reliable statistic because, uh, as I said, uh, the batteries can only store power for, for four hours. And mm-hmm. I, to give you an example, I'll go back to those three days in September when uh, gas, our natural gas produced 250, almost 250,000 megawatts. And how much you know, battery storage would we need for the, over those three days to give you the same amount of power? And that turns out to be a huge amount. Uh, and, and, uh, Basically, it would uh, cost, and I did a, a, a total costing on this, it would cost $600 billion to have enough battery plants uh, based on the Canadian dollar to be able to supply that 250,000 or just a little less than 250,000 megawatts over those three days. Now, now what now, would that kind of power cost, that amount cost for that period? Um, say from natural gas, would it be like a half as much or a quarter? What would it be? Well, it would be no, it would be, uh, I would say a tenth or, or, or less as much. That's all. Oh, a tenth or less. So when yeah. I hear people say that bringing in uh batteries to back up wind power multiplies the cost of the energy by 10, they're not exaggerating. Oh, no, not at all. That's that's a, a, a fact that that. You know, is self-evident at the present time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I mean, if you think of that six hundred billion uh, and divide it for the life of that battery pack, which is about twenty years, that would add uh, thirty billion dollars of costs a year to ratepayers in Ontario. That's about is- equal to what our current energy costs are. Yeah, geez, that's amazing. So yeah. let's say there was no climate scare. And so we didn't have much need for wind turbines. People could put them up if they wanted, but the province as a whole would not be putting in these massive amounts of wind turbines. Would there be any need for these battery storage systems? Not if we had you know, natural gas and, and some variable hydro as well. And we've got a mm-hmm. fair amount of hydro available in the province. Uh, mm-hmm. But if we keep going to full electrification, <laughs> we are gonna need a lot of power and you know, if you look at the logical things that could supply that power, like nuclear, 
the time it takes to get the approvals from the nuclear association and, and then get it through all the regulatory system and then get it actually built would be, you know, 10 to 15 years at the at the, the low point, I would think. And, and yeah. certainly we, we haven't built any new nuclear in, in, uh, in Canada for uh, probably a couple of decades. Yeah, so I put up my hand during the presentation and I said, you know, if it wasn't for the climate scare, we wouldn't bother with wind and batteries. We would just simply have natural gas. And surely that is the right answer. Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, it's uh, reliable and it's rampable. And we don't mm -hmm. have enough, as an example, in Ontario, we don't have enough rampable hydro that we can, you know, uh, just spill it over the falls or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, so we need that, that excess power, if you will. That's going to be there when... When, you know, this hot summer days or the cold winter days, when demand is higher. Uh, mm -hmm. But certainly wind and solar, as I said, particularly wind is very uh, bad about when it produces. It's, you know, in the summertime, it, it produces quite often, you know, zero uh, almost mm -hmm. during the day. It's probably at some hours consuming more um, power than it's actually uh, producing. Right, so, right. You know, it doesn't make any sense to say wind is the answer for 365 days a year. Maybe it can work for a while or, and you know, a few hours or a few days, but it's not the answer. For I sure. go back to looking at uh, the fact that Sir James Blythe is the guy that first created, he's a Scottish engineer. He was the first one to create electricity using uh, wind power, right? And that was in eight, 1887. He did that. So it's kind of old technology. It's not mm -hmm. new at all. And if you go back to, you know, looking at windmills in the Netherlands, it basically was used to grind uh, up the uh, production from the fields all the time. So Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it sounds like the best systems, battery energy storage systems, that they're all part of the response to the climate scare. Wouldn't you say that's true? Oh, yeah, definitely. It's amazing. The, the IESO put out you know, a paper that was blessed by the Minister of, of Energy, the Ontario Minister of Energy, to acquire some new power. And uh, Included in that was 2,500 megawatts of battery storage. I mean, it's just amazing how many uh, companies have suddenly popped up and are trying to get their hands on some of that 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 uh, IESO will contract for. Oh wow, and yeah. Just in that Ottawa, you mentioned Ottawa earlier. Just in Ottawa, there are I think six applications up there for almost 700 megawatts that uh, our people are chasing, our companies are chasing, I should say. Right. But, uh, yeah, and there's, uh, there's another 3,200 in eastern Ontario and about 2,200 in uh, the rest of the province. Okay, so, wow. People, now, you know, the companies are, are recognizing that, hey, if we've got a wind turbine operating or some wind turbines operating, and we combine that with that, you know, battery energy storage, we can make a lot of money, right? Mm -hmm. And I think yeah. that's what it's all about. It's all about the money. Not yeah. about, the, you know, uh, delivering clean, fossil-free power by any stretch of the imagination. 
Yeah. Now, when I was asking questions of the proponents for the battery, it was the company that was there. And what we really need is the politician, because the battery company wants us to buy batteries. Of course, that's what they make. Whereas the politician hopefully could balance different sorts of energy sources. But I said to him, you know, nuclear is being because this was after he told me it was to back up nuclear, which, as you explained, it isn't. But uh, he's, I said, well, you know, nuclear has been around for like 50 years. Why is it suddenly appropriate to have batteries now and he said oh it's because the cost of batteries has come way way down so it's now economic is that true <laughs> i don't think so i mean the the onida uh project it looks like it's you know a 250 megawatt best unit and it looks like the cost there is around 800 million dollars so mm-hmm. For 250 megawatts, 800 million. So yeah. if you multiply that by 10, which is what IESO is going to contract for, that becomes uh, $80 million, right? Yeah. All of a sudden, the price, you know, the cost of, of having four, those four hours of storage is astronomical. And that yeah, all you comes can't... back onto, you know, the ratepayers that are picking yeah. up the costs. And because it's, you know, it's expanded its power in four hours, you have to have the backup as if there was no batteries, right? <laughs> I mean, that's the problem. If, if the power happens to go up to, you know, a higher level and we have no natural gas available, we're going to have blackouts and brownouts, right? Uh-huh. And that's the big, big issue that I'm concerned about. Yeah. One one of the things that I find there's so many consequences of the climate scare. You know, I sent out an email asking people, okay, here's a list of 15 consequences, everything from much higher electricity prices to blackouts to, uh, you know, food costing more, all sorts of things. And yet I find that the groups that are opposing these things, opposing battery energy storage systems or whatever, they generally speaking don't go back to the source of the issue. They don't talk about the climate issue. I'm just wondering, do you think that more and more they have to start contesting the climate scare? Because if you take that rug out from under them, presumably there's a lot less justification for the wind turbines and the best systems and everything else. Oh, very definitely. Yeah. I mean, uh, my view is that, uh, you know, if you look at the cost of in the emissions that are created when those batteries are manufactured. All right. I've seen I've seen reports suggesting that the amount of emissions, you know, to create those batteries is actually more than they will save us from ejecting uh, in the future. You know, if that's the case, we're we're creating more emissions now uh, in order to avoid future emissions, right? <laughs> Yeah. But if we spread those out, our emissions levels wouldn't go up very much. And the uh-huh. cost would would remain reasonable so that you know people could have affordable energy. Yeah. I think it's important to emphasize that you're not against batteries per se, but you're against batteries as a major source of or major storage location of power for a province. You know, we have, for example, my daughter bought a um 102 pound lithium battery and i'll tell you when i borrow it from her i take it out to my trailer i can run the trailer for days you know and it it apparently it'll power our large fridge for about oh i think it's a week so i mean in cases like that where there's a power blackout or in cases like the remote lodge that you went to yeah battery storage is fine it makes sense 
but you're opposed to them as a major um, part of our energy system for the province. Very definitely. Yes. No, all I do is increase costs and, and increase uh, our, you know, the reliability of, of our existing system, particularly <clears throat> if they're replacing natural gas. I mean, we've, I think there's 31 municipalities in the province of Ontario that have signed on to, uh, you know, getting rid of natural gas generation. So yeah. those 31 municipalities include Ottawa. So, Parker, can we finish that thought after the break? Because uh, we need to go for a break now. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Millions of Americans are needlessly suffering from the long-haul effects of the toxic spike protein. Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company designed their spike support formula to counteract harmful spike protein from COVID-19 and vaccines so you can feel your best. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. This is Jody O'Malley with Nurses Out Loud. Did you know our body is made up of trillions of cells and inside each cell, redox signaling molecules are produced? These molecules hold a sacred place in chemistry because as we age, the vital communication of our immune system to keep our bodies free from harmful bacteria, viruses, and toxins become less efficient. For the first time ever, ASEA brings you the power of these molecules in a convenient and potent form to provide your body with the essential support it needs to thrive. Ever since I toured their facility, I take two ounces in the morning and evening, and my vitality and energy has been restored at a time I needed it the most. Go to americaoutloud.shop and get your exclusive 15% discount by using the code OUTLOUD. Cofix RX Nasal Solution has completed the circle and is now offering throat spray with povidone iodine. That completes the protocol doctors like Peter McCullough recommend. If staying healthy is important, you'll want to make sure to add throat spray to your next order of Cofix RX. For a limited time and exclusive for America Out Loud listeners only, you can save 25% off your entire order. Let's double down against colds, flus, strep, RSV, HRV, COVID, and more. Click the banner or go to America Out Loud shop to get 25% off your entire order. Use coupon code OUTLOUD25. That's coupon code OUTLOUD25. The buildup of spike proteins is dangerous to your health. Global Healing's Foreign Protein Cleanse detoxes your body, removing the spike proteins, allowing your body to repair from within. Formulated by Dr. Edward Group and by Dr. Brian Artis, Foreign Protein Cleanse targets and detoxes spike proteins in the body. Go to americaoutloud.shop and get 15% off using the code OUTLOUD. Global healing, giving you the power to take control of your health naturally. With the rise of independent media, we are now America Out Loud News. For the genius of the United States is not found in its executives or legislatures, nor its ambassadors, authors, colleges, or churches, nor even in its newspapers or inventors. The genius of the United States is we the people. AmericaOutloud.news. Liberty and justice for all. So 
I'm back with Mr. Parker Gallant. He's a retired international banker who now researches the energy sector. And he's been doing a lot of research specifically on battery packs, the battery energy storage system, the best systems that are being proposed for the whole of Ontario, quite frankly, but especially around Ottawa. And, you know, Parker, I was hoping to send this interview to some of the local councils, the little town councils that are considering putting battery packs out in the country in the rural regions. And I've been hearing from rural people that they're concerned about what happens when there's a fire of these battery packs. And so I had two questions. One is, is that very likely or does it happen one in a million years, you know, like a nuclear accident or, and if it is likely, what are the impacts of fires? It's funny you should ask that question because I live in Prince Edward County and we had uh, a company coming in to uh, seek uh, um, approval from local council to put in a, a 250 megawatt battery storage unit yeah. And uh, a, lot, a lot of people rose up and, and objected to it. And the reason, one of the reasons why that was brought out was the fact that uh, we have a volunteer fire department throughout the county. And that volunteer fire department just doesn't have the same kind of equipment that a major city would have. And they would have to add a lot of uh, different equipment and, and train up their people because... Battery fire is not, you know, like a internal combustion engine catching fire. Instead of burning at 500 degrees uh, Fahrenheit, they can rise up to 1500 degrees. And they also explode. They have this bad habit of you know, sort of blowing up. And, and that may happen, you know, three days later or a week later, as incidents around the world have proven. And, you know, uh, um, as a result, we convinced our politicians that they should not bless this uh, approval. Mm -hmm. And so we prevented it from coming here. Now, as I looked at battery energy storage systems, I also, you know, searched out and found out that there were quite a number of fires that broke out. And when I, I checked um, uh, Wiki, I think it was, a little while ago, and they have a list of, uh, I think it was old, well over 70 fires. And since 2018, um, and those are best fires. I'm talking about battery energy storage fires. And there was, uh, from 2018 to the present time, there was something like uh, 60 of them. Mm. Some of them were very, very large uh, best units. There was one in, at least one in California. Uh, and there was a, a big one, and that was one of the big ones, and, and a big one in Australia as well. And they had a tough time getting those fires out as they have in a lot of other uh, on the smaller ones around the mm -hmm. world. Why is it that they have a hard time putting the fires out? I think it's because of the uh, fact that um, for some reason, the, when the battery catches fire, uh, it, it's at such a high level that your water doesn't do anything to it, uh, and mm -hmm. those cells keep of uh, catching fire all the way through, you know, the fire is out because there's no more smoke all of a sudden. Three days later or four days later or a week later, uh, all of a sudden, uh, if there was a spark inside the batteries, battery packs somewhere, it could create more fires and, and more explosions. So, mm -hmm. you know, you have to make sure those 
those best systems are placed in in areas where you can't, you know, where where you're not going to create a fire by having an explosion or having a fire. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the whole issue about them is scary. Yeah. So so you wouldn't want a battery pack uh, half a kilometer from your house or something. No. And then a lot of the emissions that they send out when they're on fire are, are toxic as well, right? So, yeah, for sure. Know, they'll harm the air. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think in Cal- the California one, they actually had lockdowns in uh, the local areas uh, for people. Uh, until they finally contain the thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Now, getting back to the cost issue for the average person in Ontario, as we introduce more and more battery storage units across the province, how will this change the cost of electricity? It'll drive it up for sure, uh, because it's not really power that we need. Uh, it's only power that's going to be available when you know there's a high uh, high demand or uh We've got other power that's suddenly gone out. So, you know, maybe when they're refurbishing the nuclear reactor or something, uh, then we would need that power. But normally, that doesn't happen more than once every, you know, 20 years or so. So, you know, my view is that uh, we need, what we really need is power that can be ramped up. So, as I said, natural gas is the logical one because they can ramp up those um, units easily, and we mm-hmm. have a fair, fair amount of natural gas available to us in, in Ontario, and, and a lot of gas plants spread throughout the, you know, the grid system. Yeah, and they've been very reliable. So, my question to the battery storage people: that well, if it weren't for the climate scare, we'd just use natural gas. That's not such a dumb point. <laughs> yeah, and my guess is that if somebody did an analysis of how much fossil fuels emitted by those natural gas plants versus how much would be emitted by manufacturing those best units and the batteries that go with them, that we would find out that, you know, there's no advantage, if you will, in terms of emissions by having a best unit. (laughs) Right. And that's assuming, though, that we even need to control carbon dioxide emissions in the first place. Uh, Now, it's interesting because one of the points this particular manufacturer made, and I won't name them, uh, but regardless, they said that their best units don't contain any cobalt. Is that a possibility? I, I, you know, I'm not an expert on on, uh, the materials used to manufacture batteries. Mm -hmm. But I mean, he probably said that because uh, cobalt is mined in, in Africa, right? And it's uh, mm-hmm. mined often by uh, young children uh, right. who are less than 10 years old. I mean, there's been lots of videos circulating around that show them, you know, trying to extract cobalt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, so if that's a rare element, if you will, in battery manufacturing, maybe we shouldn't be treating those kids like we're treating them by, by getting them to uh, do that. Yeah, and of course, lithium comes largely from the lithium triangle in South America, where I understand that they're taking so much of the uh, surface water, groundwater, the water in the area away from the farmers, you know, it's already pretty scarce, that this is introducing a problem there for them. Now, you know, it's interesting because I've heard, and maybe you can tell me if this is true, but I've heard that generally speaking, Ontario is going to ramp down their nuclear power. Is that likely to happen, do you think? 
Well, the problem is we've been actually, they've been renovating quite a number of the units, uh, both Darlington and, and Bruce. Bruce is the biggest nuclear power unit in the whole world at the present time. Wow. Uh, have been refurbishing their plants. Uh, and that's coming along pretty well. There's still, I think, one or two units. Uh, the Darlington unit has to be uh, refurbished, but it's in process and on schedule, apparently, and within budget. <laughs> so we should have that one coming back. The big issue is right now is the Pickering units, which is 2,500 megawatts, and whether or not they will get an approval to refurbish those units, because if they go off, then... They, they provide us with a lot of power, 2,500 megawatts, well, every hour of uh, the day and every hour of the year. So yeah, it's really an important source, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, and of course, that's important to emphasize, the capacity factor. In other words, the fraction of time that the power is being generated that's supposedly at its rated capacity. For, for wind turbines, what is it, like 30% or even less? <laughs> 29 to 30% on average in Ontario. It has been ever since we started getting them. Yeah. In the summertime, it's less than 15%. Wow. So in the summer, 85% of the time, you're getting nothing from the wind turbines on average. Right. And that, of oh, course, man. is that's our peak demand time. That's when we're over 22,000 megawatts we need. Yeah. Well, I was uh, listening to an energy storage expert a, a few days ago, and he was saying that until we can store energy between seasons, in other words, not four hours worth of energy, but until we can store it so that one season can generate a lot more energy and store it, he said it's just not practical to have these systems at all. Not at all. Yeah. No, it's, uh, uh, no, and there, I don't think there's anything on the horizon that um, says we can store it for uh, a long part of the time. So if, if that technology is being developed, that's great. But right at the present time, there's nothing on the horizon that I know of that uh, can solve that problem. Yeah. So it sounds to me, if you take if you take a step back and you look at it from, you know, 50,000 foot view, it's hyper expensive it has environmental and health potential problems it's not reliable for long periods of time it, you know so i mean the only benefit is if you're trying to reduce greenhouse gases and you're pointing out that it may not reduce them anyways because of the manufacturing uh efforts the energy used to mine and make all the materials and i guess most of the batteries don't they come from china exactly <laughs> and yeah. china has a lot of the fossil fuel plants, particularly coal plants, so they're opening up, you know, one or two every bloody week. They're yeah. opening a new one. Oh. Yeah. So yeah. they're probably using coal power then to refine and make the batteries. Wouldn't that be yep. reasonable to guess? Yeah. So kind of doubling up on the emissions. <laughs> so those uh, those chips that they're bringing them over on, I presume, are uh, emitting uh, some CO two as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So you have batteries and wind turbines largely made in China with coal. <laughs> it sounds to me like maybe you just burn the coal in the first place. And that actually takes me back to 2002. You might remember Dalton McGinty. We were getting 25% of our electricity from coal. And he said, oh, this is old technology. When of course, it's not a technology. It's just a resource. But regardless, he said, we're going to get rid of this. But I mean, what did it do to the cost of electricity in Ontario, getting rid of coal? Getting rid of coal combined with adding, you know, industrial wind turbines and solar panels to our system 
been paying ridiculous amounts of money for every megawatt hour that comes out of those two, last two units um, has dri- drove up the cost of, of uh, electricity in Ontario by more than 100%. And, Whoa! Uh, yeah. <laughs> so and it's more than doubled it. Yes, more than doubled it, exactly. And right at the present time, when the Ford government took over, they said, you know, after a couple of years, they said, oh, maybe we should move some of those costs and, and uh, over to taxpayers. So at the present time, I think up to October 31st, they were estimating it was going to be six and a half billion dollars that the taxpayers were absorbing in terms of costs associated with wind and solar generation. And now, as of November the 1st of this year, they just uh, increased that. They're saying now, and maybe that's to pick up some of the costs of these S units, it's going to be $10.4 billion that taxpayers uh-huh. are going to be eating. Yeah. For our American listening audience, it's interesting. I notice when people are opposing wind and solar and batteries, they say, oh, my God, it's going to cause an increase in electricity rates of 30 to 40%. But we've had 100%, right? 100% rise. So this should be a real cautionary tale for Americans, uh, you know, states that are considering following our lead. (laughs) Well, I mean, the interesting thing about uh, some of the states is that the New England states, of course, are pushing the offshore, uh, you know, uh, wind turbines now. But they've just had some bad news, you know, Stellanus and, and Ostrad uh, of Netherlands both have pulled out of a number of projects and are obligated now to, to pay some pretty nasty fines. Oh, wow. And the reason they pulled out was because whatever they were being offered in terms of pricing was uh, not enough because the costs of producing those offshore wind turbines has, has uh, gone sky high, apparently. They do mm-hmm. a lot more money. Um, so, I mean, that that is also, I presume, affecting industrial wind turbines that are putting up uh, on, on land as well, right? Yeah. Well, it's interesting. The Climate Policy Initiative out of San Francisco, I was looking at one of their reports a few years ago, and they tracked over a billion U.S. dollars per day that was being spent on climate finance. And most of it was going to wind and solar. So it's a massive moneymaker for somebody, isn't it? <laughs> oh, yes, definitely. Yes. Yeah, no, it's it's incredible. But the, I think the bloom is lately has been falling off the rose because of uh-huh. Australia. But that what that means, those two large companies, Siemens and out of Germany and Austria, uh, are the two biggest, um, uh, if you will, uh, industrial wind turbine uh, manufacturers outside of China. But what that means is the future is going to be all about Chinese manufactured wind turbines, right? And they already right. 80% of the market. So now they're going to be in charge of 100% if Ostrad and and, uh, and uh, Siemens don't come back. Yeah. So and, you know, and, they basically are telling us, uh, you know, what what we'll have to pay, and that's scary, you know. Yeah, and I understand that even for batteries that are not made in China, almost inevitably they get their materials to make the batteries from China. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and, and yeah. I guess they don't have the greatest environmental and human rights uh, standards, do they? I don't think they do. Yes. Yeah. So taking a step back, if you were to look at Ontario and say what should be the ideal energy mix 
what would you have? Would you have any wind and solar at all on a provincial scale? But my view is that all we're doing is layering on costs when we add wind and solar. Uh, so, I mean, we got rid of coal, but we replaced coal with natural gas. Natural gas you know, it does emit fossil fuels, but they're about you know half of what the coal plants were emitting. And oh, greenhouse gas, is, yeah. I, re I remember one of the coal plants that OPG had spent, I think it was $500 million on putting... Um, uh, system to to grab the any of the pollutants that were being emitted out of that plant. And of course, when wind and, and McGinty and wind came along and said we're closing up the coal plants, they basically had spent that money. That the OPG had spent that money just a couple of years before they were elected and made these decisions to you know get rid of coal. Mm -hmm. That harmed us at the time uh, and. Uh, the, I'm not sure about China, whether or not they've got, you know, uh, the effects of, of preventing uh, fossil fuel emissions um, in their coal plants. But my guess is they probably don't. No, undoubtedly lots not. Of pictures yeah. and lots of clouds coming up. And I don't think yeah. it's just steam. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, China, according to the Paris Agreement, has to stop increasing their emissions at 2030. But if people actually look at the underlying treaty under the Paris Agreement, it's the Framework Convention on Climate Change, which was signed in 1992, you know, when Brian Mulroney was prime minister and George Bush was president. And it's interesting because in Article 4 of the UNFCCC, the Framework Convention, it says the first and overriding priority of developing countries is poverty alleviation and development. So tell me if you think this is feasible. Uh, people think China is going to stop increasing emissions at 2030, but I would guess that they would rely on this clause and say, well, if we want to pull our people out of poverty and we want to have development, we want the cheapest source of power and it's coal. So I would guess that they're probably not going to peak emissions at 2030 anyway. I'm in agreement with you. And the other thing that I just read today was that India is increasing their use of coal by 60%. Uh -huh. India is doing exactly the same thing. So the two most populated countries uh, in the world, China and India, are basically ramping up their their use of fossil fuels, while we in the you know developed countries are trying to uh, spend so much money to get down to creating no fossil fuel emissions. Yeah. You know, it's kind of like being in an inflatable life raft and you're puncturing it with a pin and everyone's giving you a hard time. But the person next to you is using a chainsaw and no one pays any attention. And of course, that that assumes that greenhouse gas emission reduction is even required at all. You know, just on the coal topic, that's an interesting one. Ontario was 25 percent coal, but for electricity generation up until 2002. But would you have gotten rid of coal completely, or would you have just brought in more modern pollution control? Well, I think um, pollution controls were the answer, but uh, at the time. But as I said, uh, the McGinty Wind uh, government said, "No, no you got to close those coal plants." Mm -hmm. I always remember there was a big festival as well when Al Gore came up and patted Wind on the back and gave her hugs and everything else for <laughs> closing those coal plants. That stays in my mind. I can still see the you know the video of them doing that and you know being excited about the whole thing. And of course, uh, the yeah. Echo Warriors were all there, you know, jumping up and down, being happy as hell because the whole plans were shut.
So when Pierre Polyev says, oh, get rid of these coal plants, bring in natural gas, it's not necessary, is it? I don't think it is. If they spent the money, uh, you know, basically, you know, putting you know, the proper you know, preventions on there to stop the emissions, you know, the toxic yeah. Well, the real toxic emissions, right? Yeah. Tell me if you think this is a bit of a crazy idea. I was told that replacing coal with natural gas is a reverse Midas touch. In other words, it's turning gold into lead. And and the point that was made to me by this person who is a, admittedly a supporter of coal, he said, well, you know, coal is wonderful for base load power. Natural gas is a special fuel that you can use for ramping up and down to, you know, compensate for changes in the, in the demand. You can use natural gas, of course, for pharmaceuticals, for many other uses. So we shouldn't be using natural gas in place of coal. We should simply use coal as a base load energy source, along with nuclear and hydro and, and things like that. So, I mean, what do you think of his reverse Midas touch idea? <laughs> it might be all right. I mean, the, the whole thing is, though, exploration for natural gas has declined. And I, you know, from, from you know, if you sort of uh, read articles talking about the geology and everything else, there's so many areas where around the world where they anticipate there's going to be lots and lots of natural gas. Mm. So, you know, why keep burning coal if we could use natural gas? Because even though it's used in so many different forms, the fact of the matter is, is that there's a lot of it out there. You know, that uh, if you look at the UK, I think they just awarded a whole bunch of contracts for like exploration over there of natural gas so, mm -hmm. and they think there's well, a lot more there yeah it's interesting that when they were running the beyond coal campaign one of the people who were working with the environments to environmentalists to try to kill coal were natural gas companies <laughs> and at the time i said well you better watch it because their next campaign after killing coal is going to be beyond natural gas and that's exactly what they're doing so i think that these companies should work together instead of try and kill each other because they're overall enemy wants to kill them all <laughs> yeah. no. you don't just recognize who that enemy is though right you yeah, haven't noticed yeah. That. Uh, yeah no it's funny i always thought i think it's it's weird that uh they don't if you will push back a little bit instead they yeah. sort of join in the whole fray you know to get to net zero and Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's really sad. It's it's kind of, you know, I, I the analogy I use is it's a little bit like someone's accused you of murder. And, you know, you're just arguing about whether you're going to be shot or hung. Um, but you didn't commit the murder. You know, like when I listen to Danielle Smith and she's saying, oh, well, you know, we, we can't do it by 2035 to net zero. I think, yeah, well, you want to do it by 2050. So they're just reducing the punishment. Uh, I mean, surely that's a strategically dumb, dumb thing to do. <laughs> I totally agree with you. I like your analogies as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now, just, now, just taking a step back, we only have about five minutes to go. Um, it'd be interesting to hear your suggestions to citizens to do. What should they do if battery storage units are being proposed for their jurisdiction? Well, Ontario has uh, the one thing, the good thing the Ford government did was saying um, that he passed a law that says uh, Local communities can and decide whether or not they want wind or, or solar, you know, uh, on their properties. So they're basically they become became the regulators, and that includes 
those best units as well. So it's uh -huh. your local municipality. It's making the decisions. You know, in the case of Ottawa, as I said, they made the decision. The council passed it uh, that you know that they they should the uh, uh, what's called the energy evolution. Remember that? Right. Did you ever read that? Yeah. Nice long. Oh, oh yeah. You know, what an impractical the energy document. Energy evolution set. There was nothing in there about the you know, battery energy storage system. It was only about wind and solar. And I think the numbers were incredible. They were looking at wind um, uh, wind installations of over 3,000 megawatts, and solar was over 1,000 megawatts. Yeah, they want 710 wind turbines taller than the Peace Tower and 36 square kilometers of solar panels. <laughs> <laughs> incredible, right? Yeah. And you wonder... Most politicians, do they really understand what it is they're doing and how much damage they're doing to the, uh, if you will, uh, the area? Uh, mm -hmm. and, and how much costs they're in, you know, implanting on the citizens of the township or the city? I mean, that's the thing that bothers me the most, is that, I guess, if you're a politician, you can make a decision today that'll cost people a lot of money in the future, but... You know, that's a decision uh, that someone, another politician will have to deal with. Yeah. So if you're advising citizens that are opposing this and citizens that are awake and they actually understand the problems with wind turbines and best systems and all that, it sounds like they've got to get involved. They've got to actually go to their council meetings, write to their councillors and say, hey, we don't want these systems. And why are you doing it? And of course, then they'll get back and say, oh, it's because there's this existential climate crisis. Well, whether you think that humans are causing climate change or not, or significantly causing climate change, I guess the point you were making earlier about India and China booming with coal stations means that whatever we do is is immaterial. Yeah, well, Canada emits 1.5% of all the global emissions. So whatever we do, whether it's at a municipal level or a provincial level or a federal level, it's going to have no impact at all on what is really happening around the world. Those uh -huh. emissions will continue to grow with uh, both uh, China and India increasing theirs, right? Yeah. So would you say that they're doing it for virtue signaling? Because, I mean, if it has no effect, then besides the massive profits for the wind and solar and best companies, I mean, is this all about the politicians looking good on the world stage, do you think? Almost. That's what I think it is. Or it's the echo warriors that have convinced them that this is the route to go. I mean, I, I see those echo warriors as a cult almost, if you will. Mm. Uh, and, and that cult is, uh, you know, infected the political system. So yeah. politicians forget that we elect them to serve us, not the other way around, right? Yeah, yeah, right. So, so I mean, the citizens have got to get involved because otherwise we're going to have our province covered with pretty useless wind turbines and best systems, hoping they don't explode into fire, uh, producing lots of toxic elements, costing a fortune. I mean, the whole thing sounds like a bit of a, I would say out of Dr. Seuss, except it's not funny. It's serious. I mean, this could really wreck our society economically, couldn't it? I totally agree with you. That That's exactly where I see it heading. Uh -huh. That's unfortunate. Yeah. So I want to really direct people to your Parker Gallant Energy Perspectives blog. And I'll put it under the podcast when it goes up on Monday, because this is an amazing write up that 
Parker Gallant does frequently, actually. He's written a number of really good articles on the best systems that everybody who's thinking of putting best systems into Ontario better read those articles. Oh, I have to ask you one last question, Parker. Guys, got to fit this in. <laughs> what's the system or what's the web page they should use if they want to see how much power really does come from wind and solar? Uh, IESO has got uh, basically an hour by hour uh, website that they you know, update on an hourly basis. You can pick and choose what you want to look at. So you can look at you know, the generators, uh, what's being generated, the prices in terms of, you know, we sell a lot of that extra wind that we produce during the spring and fall to Michigan and Quebec and, uh, and uh, New York. Mm -hmm. They can see what we're selling it for, what we're buying it for. Uh, so it's a very good website, as I said. Uh, so it's just go to IESO and, and look for uh, hourly, you know, type in hourly in, in the search engine and it'll take yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah. So IESO.org probably? Yes, it is. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, good. I'll, I'll link that under the podcast as well. So thanks so much for being my guest today, Parker. This is an interview that we'll have to share with all the communities around our vicinity that are considering best systems because, uh-oh, you're going to cause a big problem for your constituents. So thanks for being on the show, Parker. Thank you for having me, Tom. Okay. Well, this is Tom Harrison, my guest, Mr. Parker Gallant, signing out from the other side of the story. 